Welcome to episode five of the Alec Hogg Show, a half-hour audio biography where we look behind the scenes at the lives of high achievers. Our guest in this episode is Magda Wizikcha, a visionary financial services entrepreneur whose story is an inspiration for all. Born in Poland when that country was a vassal to the Soviet Union and the communist system promoted brawn over brains, her twice-specialized medical doctor parents chose their route out of that poverty through an Austrian refugee camp, finally settling in Pretoria with nothing but their skills. Like other guests on this show, Magda was selected on the basis that if her story were captured in book form, it would likely be a bestseller. So eavesdrop for the next half hour, and I've no doubt you'll learn a lot about this successful entrepreneur with a powerful passion for her adopted country. Really good to talk to you again. We've spoken many times over the years, and often when you were in situations that were quite interesting. I remember in 2018 when we were together in London, uh, you'd come out strongly against anti-corruption, against the Guptas. Things were pretty hairy for you back then. Have they settled now? Um, yes, indeed. Things have settled, uh, you know, considerably. I think then, you know, it was still the kind of hangover from the Jacob Zuma days when I was placed under illegal surveillance where I had people following me. My, my phones were tapped. Um, but all that craziness has stopped. The one thing that always existed, though, was, you know, which I really value, was that freedom of expression, freedom of speech. No one ever tried to muzzle me apart from intimidation. I've never been a good member of a club. But it's lovely that you have that, uh, what a boss of mine once called, FU money. Uh, it gives you independence. You're not bowing down to anybody. You can speak your mind. And my goodness, Magda, I won't go into the details, but... I know the role that you played in this transition away from a corrupt society to the society that we're now going into. And that independence certainly played a, a huge part in it. I am very, very fortunate in many ways because obviously I came from nothing. No one ever gave me anything. I don't owe anyone anything. You know, there was no capital behind me. No one ever funded me. You know, Signia started with six people in the room funded by my mortgage bond. And I've never done business with government. I don't know where PIC offices are and have never pitched for them. <laughs> I have no government clients. And consequently, I actually like it that way. You know, I don't like belonging to organizations where a collective agrees to represent my own views and opinions. And yes, I have been incredibly fortunate that Signia has been a success and a financial success, which has given me a level of financial independence, although my bankers might disagree. But, uh, you know, it has given me that independence to voice my views, my opinions, stand for what I think is right, even if, you know, some of it in 2017 might have put me at risk. I probably didn't appreciate the risks at that time. I recognize the privileged position I am in. I don't take it for granted. You know, what is right is not necessarily, you know, sometimes obviously a matter of perception, um, but I will always stand up for our investors and for people who commit their money to, to um, Signia. I will always stand up for South Africa. 
Um, and, you know, some of my views might seem controversial on the surface, but I wouldn't assume that everything that you see in the public domain is necessarily everything that I'm involved in behind the scenes. <laughs> Indeed. The Polish community in South Africa, small as they are, have you as a great icon. And that's because you were born in a place that I, I went and read a little about where the Second World War actually started because Hitler and his and his thugs instigated an incident. I'm sure you know all about that story. It'll come better from you. Hitler instigated the, the incident in a town I was born in, Gliwice. There was a radio station and, you know, he kind of manufactured a situation where in order to pretend that Poland attacked Germany and not Germany attacked Poland, he attacked a radio station, dressed up the Polish dead bodies in the uniforms of German soldiers, and then that supposedly gave him the excuse to invade Poland. So I was actually born in exactly that town and then grew up. I actually had that conversation with my husband last night of taking him through the, my background up until the age of 12, you know, when we escaped the communist regime and lived in a camp, refugee camp for a year, arrived in South Africa. But, you know, my years spent in Poland were far from being a picnic. A family of, you know, two parents, three children and a grandmother could fit into an apartment of roughly 60 to 70 square meters. We didn't even have enough space in that apartment for a dining room table because he said to me, well, what did you do about mealtimes? I remember mealtimes as we were all kind of squatting around a small coffee table and <laughs> because there was no space for a dining room table. So it was, you know, a humble start. The positive side of it is everybody was in exactly the same position, so you didn't have any rich people. And, you know, the, the education was incredible. The emphasis on sciences and mathematics that was placed in, that is what makes me so sad about South Africa, that, you know, I know what it takes to build the foundations of a healthy, prosperous society. And we're getting it all wrong. If you look at our education system in South Africa, we should be starting right there. But what is interesting is your parents, both of them, were medical doctors. So here you have a family of six in a two-room department, and yet they are extremely well qualified. I guess that was the way communism worked. I only have to read the, the animal farms to, to know that everyone was equal. Uh, my parents were double specialists each, but you know they, all, they earned exactly the same money as, in fact, less money than a coal miner earned in, in the coal mines. So coal miners were celebrated in a communist system because the danger they were exposed to. Medical doctors were not particularly celebrated because, you know, it was a utility type function. Yes, it required, you know, high level of education, but at the end of the day, you weren't in any imminent danger and you actually had quite a comfortable job. You know, fundamentally, everyone had the same. No one had a, you know, car. Car was a luxury. There was no food in the shops. So everyone queued together for hours to buy things. Everyone lived in teeny tiny apartments. And in fact, you were lucky to get an apartment as a family. Otherwise, families lived together. So you know what? You didn't know what you didn't have. <laughs> and then coming to South Africa via uh, a refugee camp in Austria, where you spent some time, once you got here, you were in your early teens when you arrived in South Africa. Did it make you more motivated, perhaps in the same way as one hears that immigrants do make a disproportionate impact on the countries they move to? 
I guess this moment of pandemic kind of gets you to to have these moments of retrospection and evaluate your childhood and perhaps see things through a different prism. So I have had a little bit of reflective time on my hands. And, you know, I think those years were actually incredibly tough. So we arrived in South Africa. We didn't speak any English. My parents had to, at the age of, you know, early 40s, replicate a life, which means they actually had to earn enough money to buy a teaspoon. We had nothing. My father had $500 in the bank. So they didn't have a lot of emotional time or any time for that matter to devote to the three of us, which basically meant that, you know, we became independent at a very young age. And so I was independent at the age of 12. I was financially independent, completely financially independent of my parents by the age of 18. So it's all the decisions that usually are done in the family context, even a silly decision as, you know, grade eight, what subjects are you going to study for matric? I had to make those choices by myself. There wasn't just bandwidth to assist me with these kind of choices. The fact that, you know, I had to work in Oki Bazaars, cold meats counter, that's to buy some nice clothes. I, I happen to like nice clothes, as you know. So, so it made me very independent. And, and obviously the other driver was the fact that my parents made it very clear that obviously we have no money. There is the family. And you will have to help to support the family financially. There's a family in Poland that you will have to help support financially. And I grew up with that kind of an expectation, which, you know, with hindsight, when you look at a 12, 13-year-old and you say, well, you are being brought up with this knowledge that so much depends on you, it's a tough childhood. You know, it's a tough gig. You know, it's not a linear childhood. And, you know, do I sometimes regret the fact that I didn't have a very simple kind of linear childhood. Absolutely. <laughs> You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. It is interesting because I'm sure that if you think laterally to South Africa, there are lots of little Magdas today. From maybe the next generation of, of entrepreneurs are going to come from those young women. What I actually find so fantastic about South Africa. So I said, you know, as much as this COVID uh, crisis has been, you know, an, an unprecedented economic disaster, I think what South Africa has going for it, which other countries don't, and then we spend a bit of time in the UK, I can see that, you know, there's just nothing. They don't have any survival skills. Our population has survival skills. People have learned to survive with very little. Hence, you know, I don't, I don't expect people to, to feel sorry for me because I think you're quite right. There's a you know, I was very fortunate to at least get vision as opposed to, you know, some of our youngsters in South Africa who don't. But, you know, we've got a lot of people who are adaptable to really tough conditions. I also do believe that there are a lot of entrepreneurs. And, you know, I kind of arrived in, in the UK, set up a venture capital business in the UK, and I'm expanding it a bit. But what I actually want to do after that is um, come back to South Africa and look at setting up similar uh, fund, a venture capital fund in South Africa to see whether we can spur on and support financially entrepreneurship in South Africa. It's a chapter of my life. That's very exciting. And it's also very relevant for where we find ourselves in South Africa right now. But before we talk about that, and that is the sign of the times into the future, your own career 
you went to Cape Town, you did actuarial science, um, which is the toughest of all subjects to do. But somewhere I read that it wasn't your first choice. So what was your first choice? And, and had you taken your first choice, how would life have maybe been different? You know, my parents were medical doctors, um, so I wanted to be a medical doctor. And my father, again, you know, it's a questionable, questionable choice, decided that I needed to go into business without knowing what business was coming from a communist Poland and needed to dissuade me as a 17-year-old from going to medicine. He worked at the first military hospital in Fortecke-Wuchte. And so um, he took me to the secret ward where all the soldiers coming, you know, brought back from Angola were being kept in isolation and exposed me to the most horrific kind of visuals of, of maimed people. And, you know, it, it, it was horrific to persuade me that medicine is not an option and I should be looking at something else. He also didn't have the money to fund my university education. So um, actuarial science was something that a friend suggested. I had no idea what it was. And mainly because life insurance companies were offering 100% bursaries for actuarial science. So they paid for absolutely everything. So I signed up for actuarial science. I, you know, I applied for these bursaries. I was fortunate enough to get one. And then I started studying something I didn't understand. The only part that I really, truly loved about my university career was economics. So this is where I discovered this love for economics and in particular macroeconomics, which actually serves me very well today. But I was surrounded by much brighter people than me, you know, within I could look left and I could look right. And, you know, I was surrounded by mathematical geniuses and I'm not a mathematical genius. Afterwards, you know, when I started working, I looked around and I went, you know, there's no way I can pursue an actuarial career. And obviously moved into investment via the route of coronation fund managers, which was then a startup and then African Harvest and Insignia. But, you know, if I had become a medical doctor, I suspect that very quickly I would have looked at the business aspects of medicine rather than necessarily treating patients. You know, if I actually look at the field of medicine right now, and that's what I'm involved in in the UK with the venture capital fund, it's investing in startups in, you know, healthcare and life sciences sector. You know, there is so much which actually, you know, having had a medical background would have been very, very helpful. So I think I would have drifted naturally into some combination of medicine and, and business. I would have been, you know, the GP. And I guess that's also uh, makes it a little more understandable how you got involved with the Oxford University vaccine at Signia. And we've got many South Africans now who are invested in what is still the leading vaccine um, around the world for COVID-19. I invested um, in a company called Oxford Sciences Innovation, which is this joint venture between the University of Oxford and uh, the private sector asset managers who approached um, Oxford um, and basically persuaded Oxford that, you know, they're not very good at commercializing the IP that originates out of Oxford, despite Oxford being the number one research university in the world, the number one research university in medical sciences. You know, they, they were very, very bad, you know, in comparison to even Cambridge, never mind US universities, in taking that IP and actually turning it into companies and helping the academic staff to turn it into worthwhile companies. So just approached Oxford and offered to set up a company called Oxford Sciences Innovation, inject 600 million pounds into that company. And that company would look at all the IP that originates out of Oxford and have an exclusive relationship to commercialize that IP. 
since 2015 has spun out 80 different companies. One of them, Basitech, is the IP owner of the Oxford Vaccine Project. The shares, obviously, in OSI itself were very tightly held until some active asset managers started falling out of bed in response to assets moving away from active asset managers to passive in the UK. And that gave me an opportunity last year to step in and buy up in bulk some of the, that, those shares. Um, and we ended up being an 18.2%, I think, shareholder in, in OSI as it stands. And once we had the OSI shares, you know, I thought, well, OSI is one thing, but look at this rich universe of companies that are, you know, involved in the most exciting spheres of, it might be, you know, some of it is AI and technology, but a lot of it is life sciences. So why not set up funds around that ecosystem? You know, we've been very successful in raising, I think, south of um, 3 billion rand from South African institutional investors, some from retail investors for those investments. I think it's, um, you know, great investment opportunity. It's an incredible story, uh, but you've managed to somehow read the environment when Signia, for instance, which is a which has been a, a massive success story, although your share price, you can tell us about that in a moment, but Signia is all about passive investing and started when you listed in 2015. Passives were a very poor cousin to active investing and today uh, that has completely swung. What gave you the understanding? Was it as simple as saying, well, it's happened elsewhere in the world, it has to happen in South Africa? I managed my very first index tracking fund in 1992 when working for Southern Life. So when I, you know, I had my bursary from Southern Life doesn't exist anymore, I was taken over by Momentum as a life insurance company. Um, and that's where I got my bursary from. So I had to work for, for Southern Life after I finished university. Obviously within a few months discovered actuary of science was not my thing and managed to angle my way into the investments division. And they didn't actually know what to do with me. Um, the investment active side was failing. They were losing assets end of a fist, but someone somewhere heard about this concept of index tracking and they knew that it had to do with mats, needed some mats. They said, you're an actuary. Um, we're going to send you to Los Angeles and you need to come back with the skills to manage the index tracking fund and some software for us to do it. I flew across the world, you know, I was, I think it was my first international trip outside of obviously coming to South Africa. And um, there was a company in the U.S. which kind of collaborated with us and I brought those skills back to South Africa, launched the first equity and the first bond index tracking fund. And then I left. I, I joined Alexander Forbes just for a year as investment consultant before moving to Coronation. And then, you know, for the next, I mean, we're talking 11 years of my career, I worked in active asset management, but with the background of asset. And nothing that I saw in the active space made me believe, I'm very sorry, and I'm quite sure I'm just about to make a whole lot of more enemies than uh, I've had to date, but nothing that I have seen in active asset management space makes me believe that anyone managing money on an active basis is particularly special, brighter than average men in the street, or able to make better investment decisions. When I looked at this, you know, very elaborate, everyone has investment process, elaborate investment processes to select shares, to try and outperform, nothing in that process led me to believe that there is any value add. I still completely believe in my heart of hearts that decision-making is completely random. And it's a 50-50 chance whether a share will go up 
whether it will go down, whether you will outperform or whether you will underperform. So I had the opportunity to start my own company. And frankly, Signia was six people in the room, no capital backers. I said, guys, we need to go back to the drawing board and say, what do we truly believe? So we started our passive offering in 2006 when we started Signia. I was also commercial about it. I knew that, that institutional investors in particular and definitely retail were not ready for, for passive investing. So we started offering products which were a mixture of 50% passive, and then I'll add in coronation and investing to make you feel better. We've spun it more and more and more and more towards the passive side. And when you look at our 10-year performance track record, our passive products outperform all these active asset managers, hands down. I've always been a believer, and obviously I've watched what has happened in the US, where more than 50% of savings is now managed on a passive basis. UK is going exactly the same route. South Africa is starting to follow we're still in you know, early stages of it, but I think people are starting to realize that uh, there is absolutely no reason to pay astronomical fees. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. Magda, the decision to list on the stock market in 2015, October 2015, the share price hasn't done a lot. Recently, it's doubled in the last few months, which, is, which I'm sure uh, it pleases you, but it's still very much where it was in 2015. Was that a, looking back with hindsight, was it a good call? I wanted to buy a business called uh, DBX Trackers. It was a Deutsche Bank index tracking business. They would only sell that business to a listed entity. Consequently, we listed in order to acquire a business. We listed at exactly the wrong time. If one just talks about listings, because we listed in the top of the kind of small cap mania. And since then, the JSC has just gone one way and it's not been up, it's been down. Uh, you know, we also very, very thinly traded. So, um, you know, we've got what's called a free float of, I think, 23%. But even within the 23%, a lot of big chunks are held by investors who are not trading the shares. So the share trades, you know, 100 shares a day. You know, the decision to list to buy the, the DBX tracker acquisition has been very good for us. Uh, we've managed to double those assets under management. It gave us, you know, a, a different product line in exchange traded um, space, uh, fund space. But, you know, if, if I look at it uh, from a perspective of do we benefit from a listing? No. I mean, there has been no other benefit from, from being listed. Did you consider delisting now that you'd achieved your objective of, of buying DBX trackers? It's it's uh, you know it's 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 this uh, listing JC listing requirement which makes it very difficult to talk about what your plans might be or what you what you consider because the moment you consider anything then you are supposed to put it on sense and announce it to potential investors. But I certainly have been watching the number of companies that have in the large number of companies that have delisted from the JC. Worries me, and it's kind of roundabout way of answering the question. What obviously worries me is the fact that the investable universe of listed companies on the JSC has halved, which basically means that for investors, the opportunities to invest in growth assets has just shrunk. I think a much bigger problem that we have on the table right now is not prescribed assets and government bonds, 
but the dialect of diversification on the JC and you know what uh, people can invest in in terms of you know the, the listed share space um, and how narrow that choice is and how it's not growing. You know we are not growing that pie. Uh, we are, that pie is actually shrinking and for, and and will continue to shrink as companies delist. You're listening to the Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. And so to come back to what we were talking about right in the beginning, the intention to come to South Africa to start helping entrepreneurs to build, and presumably at some point in time, that will be a, a wave of new listings as we, we get these bright folk to um, expand uh, their capital bases as well. The idea behind, you know, kind of venture capital funds is that you provide the funding to people with good ideas. I mean, and, you know, they, they always have differences between things such as, you know, companies originating out of Oxford University, where it's life sciences and years of research have gone into a particular vaccine or a particular device that monitors whatever heart rhythms you know, and method of innovation. I mean, there's a lot more. You know, and, and, and it takes years to come to market. But the other wave of innovation is technology-driven innovation. So this is people with business models which have to do with an app development or online sales enhancement experience or artificial intelligence-driven uh, bots. You know, so, so those kind of innovations which don't take years and years and years the people might have the good idea. They might not necessarily have the skills to implement that idea, but they have an idea. And provided you have a good idea, you know, the capital and the skills to implement that idea can be found. And then those companies can then become job creators and can, you know, mature much much more quickly than anything in the life sciences space. Hopefully, you know, some of them can come to market in their own right in time. Magda, just to close off with, you recently turned 50. Uh, many people are hitting. <laughs> I can't say you just said that. <laughs> well, but many, it feels, it, well, it's the new 30. So many people have then the, still the energy and the enthusiasm and the experience to really start pushing on. Do you feel that's you, that uh, the business world is now uh, going to see an acceleration of Signia, of uh, Magda Wizicha. The last, you know, let's assume I've been in business for now that you've disclosed my age um, for a better part of. It's on Wikipedia. So. <laughs> <laughs> for twenty six or twenty seven years, you know, it has gone in a whirl. I mean, if I actually look at look back, I just can't believe how quickly those years have passed. But having said that, I am now 50 and, um, you know, I believe that, look, I'm not ever going to slow down. But now what I do have behind me is I've got capital. I've got experience and expertise. I've gone through tough times. So I know what, what it's like to, to start from nothing. You know, it's, it's not as if I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Uh, I've started numerous businesses. So I believe that I can lend expertise. You know, I don't push into areas I don't have expertise in. I'm terrible at playing corporate politics, as you could imagine. I know how to help start businesses. I know how to, you know, kind of develop a commercial growth path and a pipeline for, for new businesses to apply it in a kind of both constructive way and hopefully commercial way, which will benefit senior, senior shareholders, senior investors. But, you know, I'll, I'll, 
finish up maybe with an anecdote, um, and that is my uh, best friend at university was um, someone by the name of Rule of Water, who is now the managing partner of Sequoia Capital in the US. He was also one of the founding partners of PayPal and the founding investor in Instagram and YouTube. So he left South Africa straight after university and uh, moved to United. And obviously, has done great things. Uh, king of a king of Silicon Valley, you could say. He's the king of Silicon Valley. So last year, I went to see Rolof in uh, Palo Alto, and uh, we were driving in his car. And he says to me, "Magda, when we were at he's very intense." Um, and he says to me, "Magda, when we were at university, remember we had a pact because he also, despite the day, came from nothing. His family gave him nothing. Okay, now we are here, fifty. You know, we, we always talked about fame, fortune, power. Which of these three, given where we are in life, what matters to you most? Fame, fortune, or power? And I said to him, rule of social good. He said, you can't change the rules of the game. We had a game. We played the game. <laughs> Forget social good. It's, you know, fame, fortune, power. I went, rule of, I've managed to bring the fourth pillar into my equation. And that is social good. And if I can marry the fourth and leverage one against the other, um, use potentially some power or influence I have, use some money I have, use the fact that I do have a voice in the public arena as it appears, then, you know, if I can marry that with making a positive contribution to in particular society, you know, to, to in particular South Africa and, and average South African, then, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to do that. Um, and that really is the ambition for the next 30 years. That was episode five of the Alec Hogg Show, this time featuring financial services visionary Magda Wezikcha. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Until the next time, cheerio. Cheerio.